0: Important checklist item, yes, suspenders. If I was not wearing them, my pants would fall down, but of course, nobody would see that. So, really, for all you know, I'm not wearing pants. I just have suspenders attached to my underwear. Okay. <laughs> so welcome, everyone. This is Ian Knight. This is a recording of a first episode of our new podcast, Corpus Multi. Uh, it's a podcast about philosophy, but from the perspective of multiplicity, which have a lot more intersections and overlaps than I think most people expect. Uh, as I talk, and I'm going to talk a lot, there's a big monologue all planned out here, uh Feel free to leave comments, to interact uh, through the live feed. That is perfectly, totally okay. And like I say, at the end, we'll have like a little Q&A session where you can ask the usual questions I've been asked a million times over, so don't feel embarrassed or feel that it's weird or awkward. I can guarantee you, whatever question you have in your mind, I have probably heard worse. And also, if you have questions about uh, what the talk tonight is about, that is highly appreciated and those will be incorporated and become part of the final version of this podcast. And I will edit that later and that will become the polished final version. So this is like 90s sitcom style filmed in front of a live studio audience. Tonight's topic is pretty fundamental. It's kind of where we have to start in this discussion, um, because it sort of gives us a framework to talk about some more complicated concepts later on, but this subject is kind of deceptively simple. The idea that we're going to be exploring tonight is the idea of personhood. So how do you recognize a person? How do you know that someone is a person or something is a person? And this is usually, when it occurs to people as a question, seems like a really obvious, silly question, because we all have an intuitive understanding of what we think a person is. It's something we think we recognize just off the street because we're surrounded by persons all the time. And we can usually, we think, tell persons from non-persons pretty easily, but it gets pretty complicated, pretty fast. If you start thinking about all of the exceptions and the edge cases and the potential entities that we could encounter that we're going to have to sit down at some point and say, is this a person? Is this not a person? So we're going to run a number of thought experiments around new entities. We'll start with a a really popular science fiction scenario. You land on a new planet. There's life on this planet. You observe the life doing some very interesting patterns of behavior, interacting with each other, interacting with you, interacting with the environment in ways that seem to show intelligence beyond what we would normally think of as just animal intelligence. So you have to, as an explorer, stop and look at this creature and figure out whether or not this is a person. And in a lot of science fiction scenarios, it's pretty obvious because they have a spaceship as well, and that's how you've encountered them. And they speak some alien language that you now get to decipher. But it brings us to another thought experiment. What if the entity that you encounter is sort of straddling in a boundary between characteristics you think of as person and characteristics you think of as just animal level intelligence. So for instance, who was the first person in human history? Who was the first primitive, ape-like, human-like, Homo habilis, Neanderthal? Which one was the first person? Because before that, There were far more primitive ape-like animals who would give rise to humanity, but we would not consider persons in the usual sense. We can talk about animal personhood later, but if we're just going from this perspective, between the most primitive and the more recognizable people, which one was the first person? And how do you know? How do you tell? What did they do? What did they think? What made them a person? Another obviously really popular one right now is talking about artificial intelligence. So you have, let's say a robot, we'll even say a human-shaped robot, looks like a human, talks like a human, acts like a human. You have to now sit down and figure out, is this robot worthy of being considered a person like you are. And what characteristics, what tests, what definitions are you going to apply to figure that out? I love some robot AI philosophy. Uh, What else have we got here? There's others too. Some of these are getting really complicated, and we'll go into them a little more later. I want to stop before we get any further and discuss Just briefly, the idea of legal personhood. If we're talking as philosophers, and we're going to pretend that we are, because we're doing philosophy, there's a distinction that's made in legal terms about what a person is, which overlaps and should be informed by philosophy, but isn't necessarily... isn't necessarily useful in a lot of cases because if you go back, you know, 100, 200 years person had a very specific definition, which involved white skin, male genitals, um, owning land. So these things nowadays we look at, and these don't seem to have either a moral, a philosophical or a legal, Standing as what we use as the definition of a person. So I want to get that out of the way that we're not going to be going down that particular path. It also goes down to some really strange kind of categories. Corporations are included in what a legal person is. But if we're talking about do we think that this entity has... Uh, self-awareness, consciousness, and inner life. Are they worthy of morality, respect, consideration, empathy? The legal definitions don't really help us out, so we're going to skip right past that. So, okay, we're going to start with this then, because this is a really good place to start. And there was a philosopher, René Descartes, Uh, who did the very popular, very well known, I think therefore I am quote. And what he determined was that there was so much that was unknowable that could be reduced to simpler parts that could be analyzed further, broken down, and we still didn't know the fundamentals, the basics. But there was one thing he said that he found couldn't be reduced, that it was on its own self-evident and couldn't be taken apart or brushed off. And that was your own sense of being a person, your own self-consciousness, your self-awareness. So the big problem with that is that if you are you having your experience of being you, it seems frustratingly obvious to you that you were a person, but there's not actually a really easy way to prove that to another person. I know that one promised zombies in some of the uh, press release kind of uh, stuff that he put out. There's a concept of philosophical zombies in philosophy, this kind of what-if scenario. What if you encountered a creature that looks exactly like a person, acts like a person, talks like a person, and seems like a person in every way, but has no inner experience of being a person who is, say, operating on a very strict programming, like a robot that just has sort of in-out, in-out kind of... Uh, modes of being, ways of processing information and responding to it without understanding, without awareness. It's called a philosophical zombie. It's not, it's not the fun, you know, moldy, shumbling around kind of zombie, but it's actually creepier to think about, in my opinion. (laughs) So. The problem is that none of us can prove that we are not philosophical zombies. We all seem to each other to be conscious and self-aware and real. We all seem like persons to each other, but that's also just sort of how we have evolved and how our own minds work is to empathize and recognize other people because it's just, useful to do so. To go around questioning each other and trying to sort out who is real and who is just a facsimile, an imitation, is not a useful way to go about doing things. And honestly, we don't lose out much if we just assume that other people are worthy of moral consideration and just do our best to not harm them is kind of how it goes, which is really kind of a spooky thought when you think about it, because we're just operating on that assumption. We're just going on that. It seems like the most likely thing, but trying to prove that an entity, including yourself, is a person, is conscious, self-aware, uh, has thoughts and feelings, is a lot more difficult than it looks on the surface. You start looking at edge cases, and you start realizing that personhood might not be as distinct a definition as you would hope it would be. For instance, I don't want to get into like this particular big discussion, but it is a discussion that we have to have that opens up all kinds of complicated issues, but we need to sort it out is when does a person begin and end? For instance, we talk about, is it the moment of conception? Is a fertilized egg a person? Is uh, a fetus a person? At birth, does someone become a person? If you look at psychology, you run into a really complicated problem that makes it even worse, is that a lot of the things we associate with consciousness, self-awareness, that kind of thing. Children after birth don't have them until about 18 months old, depending on the child and the characteristic that you're looking at. Children don't recognize themselves in front of a mirror until 18 months old, for instance, which is considered one of the key tests about self-awareness is, uh, is that entity aware that a mirror reflects an image of themselves that they are, themselves an entity that can be, uh, viewed modified in that way, uh, animals that can only see another animal in a mirror usually lack self-awareness and at 18 months, babies are failing this test too. So what point between conception and death does someone become a person? by that cluster of definitions. And also another really difficult part of this question is under certain circumstances, can someone continue living but cease being a person? Uh, for instance, a brain injury, so severe that, uh, someone has absolutely no action going on inside their skull is being kept alive. This is obviously really messy situations, but is important as well. So at what point do we say this person is already gone, even though we see a heartbeat, or and we see breathing? Again, an edge case that makes the whole category of personhood a lot less comfortable and obvious. We talked about protohumans, about who were the first persons and whether or not it's useful to talk about there being a first person in the evolutionary process, because there's not even a a distinction between species. There's no first member of the human species, even. So if we can't find a line between that, if all of the lines between species are fuzzy, then finding the first person, the first would we say the first entity that, uh, passes the mirror test, the first, uh, the first to use language. I mean, there's all kinds of people we consider persons who are incapable of using language. And like I say, there's very little people 18 months and under who don't understand mirrors. So now if we're landing on this other planet and we've discovered, if we're talking science fiction, one of the best was this rock thing in Star Trek that could move around, that could attack the miners, that could defend these strange spherical nodules, and no one understood why. And then it was understood at some point that this creature was sentient That it was conscious, aware of itself, was protecting its young, all of these things. There was a process they went through in that particular instance of finding out that the creature could use language. I mean, if something has language and can make the statement that it is a person, then that seems like a really easy first step. But it doesn't necessarily work like that. If we go to the AI example, for instance, now we can have a computer that has no consciousness or self-awareness. I can program a computer to pop up on a screen and say, I have awareness, I am a person, I am conscious. But the computer is just taking input and spitting out output without anything in between, any understanding of what the words mean. It doesn't really have personhood. And this is actually the basis of what's called the Turing test. The Turing test was developed by, uh, Alan Turing, who was just a totally brilliant mathematician, cracked the Enigma code in World War II. He came up with this idea that an artificial intelligence that was on our level of consciousness, awareness, was inevitable, and he devised this test to determine whether or not the black box sitting on the counter had made it. He said that you couldn't go into the computer and find self-awareness and consciousness and understanding. By the time a computer was capable of having those things, they would be well beyond our ability to open up the box and see. So he said, what if we just took this from a strictly behavior standpoint? What if we put the box in a room, put a human being in another room, and in a third room had a tester, a judge, and the judge would have conversations with both of the contestants And the computer, the AI, could be said to have passed this test if the judge couldn't figure out which of them was the person, or I should say, which of them was the person in human skin and which of them was the person in the black box. Because he supposed by then they would both be considered persons. They would both be conscious, intelligent, and have understanding. And it seems like... As we've developed computers since then, that's kind of fallen apart because we have computers now who are quite good at natural language, who can uh, structure sentences together and take an input sentence and give back an output sentence in a way that seems intelligible. But we have yet to have a computer pass the Turing test. They are coming closer and closer, and some can, in short range, in short periods of time, in certain conversations, fool human beings for a little bit, but they all fall apart because there's nothing behind them that has understanding, that's capable of taking in a novel input that they're not designed for, and returning a novel output that is more than the sum of their programming. My perspective is this is actually a really useful test because in order to pass an AI would actually have to understand what the conversation was about. And when you have conversations with chatbots with these different, uh, programs who have come relatively close to passing the Turing test, relatively close, One of the things you run into very quickly is that they're really good at just spitting out things that they've heard or things that they've said before or mashups of what they said before. But if you introduce a new concept to them, they fall apart really fast. Like, say you as the judge have a hobby that's a little obscure. You collect Romanian coins or stamps from Russia or something like that. And you start talking about them. If you were to start up a conversation with a regular human being about a thing like that, they in their heads would go back to, okay, what is Russia like? What is, what are stamps like? What do I know of these categories? What can I expect about these categories being put together? And to be able to spit out, like a novel thought, like a like a question about stamps that isn't programmed in, that you hadn't thought about before, is something that AI can't currently do. so right now, actually it it might be telling us something more than we expected. I think that an AI that can pass the Turing test would have to be at least on some fundamental level conscious. It would have to be capable of understanding and being aware that there's a world that it can interact with. And that distinction between the world and itself is like the first glimmer of self-awareness. Yeah. I kind of have a soft spot for AI and I'm probably going to ramble on for another, you know, four or five hours about it. If uh, no one stops me. Okay, the next part of it that I want to talk about is related. So we're also looking at a world increasingly where the distinction between us and machines is, besides AI, we also have this world where humans and machines are becoming a little more uh, mixed. And this is something that has been happening for a long time. This is not really a sci-fi kind of concept. We have had... You know, eyeglasses to help people see uh, for a long time. The concept of, like, the cyborg is not really new. We've had uh, eyeglasses. We've had hearing aids. There are lots of people walking around with metal joints inside their bodies, with uh, devices that keep their hearts running at a regular rhythm, like all kinds of things. Uh, there are even people with artificial hearing artificial sight is like becoming very developed. So if we start thinking about what we can take away from and what we can add to the human body, this raises up like a whole bunch of other questions about personhood, because we're used to seeing a human body as either equivalent to a person which is like such an easy definition. It gets us out of a lot of kind of complex situations, but it's not a perfect definition either. So if we're talking about like taking away and adding to the human body, all of a sudden we've got really, we've got more of these edge cases about what a person is. So there's a really, really old analogy called the ship of Theseus, basically Theseus this, uh, hero went out on his ship and on a long, long voyage. And as he went, pieces of the ship would break down, have to be replaced. So as was done, and it was a very, very long voyage. So by the time he came back home, each piece of his ship had been replaced at least once over. So at no point during any particular repair, Did more than, say, 5% of the ship get switched out with new parts? But at the end, none of the original parts are still there. So at what point goes the question, did this ship become a new ship, or do we consider it the same ship? Because, like I say, during any particular repair, you would look at the ship beforehand, and then you would look at the ship afterhand, And you'd be like, yeah, we've like replaced three of the deck boards and the mast. And, of course, it's the same ship. So we can look at the human body the same way. If we are replacing individual pieces of the human body, and it's becoming increasingly evident that we might be able to replace all of them, potentially, even like the neural system, at what point... Do we have a new person? And taking a step back from that, can't we say that this process is actually already happening all the time? Because even the biological processes that we're more familiar with, the natural human state, we are constantly shedding cells, replacing them with new cells, every cell in our bodies. We all know this truism, and it's true. Some cells get replaced within days, like the lining of your stomach, because, I mean, it's, the, it's a pretty acidic, scary environment for cells, so they don't last long, so they're constantly being replenished. But every cell in your body at some point gets replaced. Over the course of a few years, there's no part of you that is exactly the same. Over a full cycle, you have become completely physically a new person. So are you the same person? now if you're replacing your body with technology and let's say you can even replace parts of your brain with we'll say hardware give me a hard drive for my memory please that leads to a whole new configuration of parts it's no longer even the same genetic biological person but you have swapped out all of the parts one by one in the end are you the same person, even though you are now more or less fully robotic? And is that that much different than the usual biological replacement of parts? Here's a really tricky kind of sci-fi interpretation of this. Take out the cyborg for a moment. Let's just take you, a regular human. I'm assuming all of my watchers are human, but you know, I don't mean to be speciesist. If you were to take you today and put you in a time machine and take you back to 20 years ago, I was about to say a year, but I don't want to date myself. Let's take you back 20 years. So I'm assuming you're older than 20, if not, adjust as you like. So now you're next to the child version of you. Now, you would think genetically, at least, you'd be identical, not necessarily the case because actually our genome even changes very slowly over time. So we're not exactly genetically related to our younger cells. We're passable. I could probably steal a body part or some blood for a transfusion or something like that and get away with it pretty soundly. But this is turning into a really good story, actually. Someone should make this into a movie. So if you've traveled back and you are next to the child version of you, do you look at that child and think of yourself as being identical in personhood? Are you the same person? I mean, you've got 20 years on that younger version of you. So can we say that you are two separate people? Or that maybe personhood was this like long, complicated gradient that was formed by a whole bunch of different life experiences. And like the ship of Theseus, from day to day, you could say you were the same person. But added up after all that time, I usually don't think of myself as the same person. Well, I mean, for more detail, we'll get into later. But... It seems to me that those two people in the same room, if you asked anyone, an observer, they'd say, yeah, they they look related, like really closely related. They could be father-son, mother-daughter. But I don't think most people, and I don't think most tests would show that you were the same person. So going back to that cyborg, let's say we've got a time machine, and we have you while you were still fully biologically human and you after all the parts have been replaced. I mean, those seem like different people, different persons, but also now we've got an entity that is fully robotic made of mechanical parts that we can plug into a computer. This is something that we can copy paste This is something that we can find all identical parts for and go back and set up a data link and transfer, copy all the files from one to another. Are we now looking at two duplicate versions of the same person? This is something we could do with an AI as well. I mean, you can copy paste whatever parts or the whole that you like. And potentially this is something we could do with biological people as well. I mean, the pattern of, you know, all of the cells in your brain is something that could essentially just be reduced down to information. The whole point that I'm trying to get at is that this whole concept of what a person is, you know, you walk down the street and you can pretty easily pick out what you think a person is. But it's not as easy as you could be led to believe, at least in theory and in a lot of real life instances as well. Like in practice, this gets really complicated. So for instance, we're talking about discrete units. We'll say, okay, well, we'll simplify things. We'll say something living with a brain that is functioning. We'll call that a person. But there are several cases of conjoined twins, some of whom are alive, some of whom have been analyzed in medical history, that we have been able to see they share large sections of brain tissue. And their experiences of being themselves are very fuzzy in certain situations. For instance, there's one set of twins. There's a very famous video clip of them you can find where, if I remember right, one twin was blindfolded and the other was given, I think it was like a cherry or a strawberry or something, something to taste. And the other twin immediately knew what they were tasting. An actual experience, a sensory experience, had passed between these two individuals. And they were individuals. They had separate names. They had separate preferences, separate likes. One could get sick and the other would be well. One could take the medicine for the other. Their experiences, which is something that is so core to being a person and identifying as a person, is having that internal life is not necessarily something that we can count on either, and it's not just a science fiction concept. People are really bad at instinctively knowing what a person is. And there's lots of cases we can use to demonstrate this. For instance, if you're faced with C3PO and R2D2, you have one robot in a vaguely human body with a face who talks in a language you can understand and basically is incapable of physical acting. The actor inside can like just sort of shuffle around and be really smarmy. But R2-D2 is this garage bin on wheels. It beeps. It doesn't seem to be very human like we, like we are, but it took a great deal of effort and acting to, and sound design to make R2-D2 believable as a person because looking at the two of them, one is a garbage can and one is a person shaped robot, right? We have that instinctual response and the movie actually had to go out of its way to get us around that. Uh, we run into it in situations like wax museums, where there are very, very lifelike people tend to make a lot of people really uneasy. It's called the uncanny valley effect, where the closer something seems to be a person but isn't, the creepier it gets. And situations where we start ascribing personhood to characters like that, it leads us down all kinds of really complicated and weird paths. For instance, if you're looking at Ventriloquist with a dummy, and the dummy starts mouthing off and giving attitude, and the Ventriloquist is like embarrassed and like trying to keep them in line, we all know this act, and the act kinda works on us, because at the end of the act, we have to really remind ourselves that the ventriloquist said all of that. That the personalities that we saw portrayed were both from the ventriloquist. So we tend to ascribe personhood and intention to things that even obviously aren't and have to stop and remind ourselves of how things actually work. Okay. I did, I do have a point. I promise. I'm getting to the point. I'm at the point now. You can relax. Take a deep breath multiples. This is kind of where the crux of all this is leading to. If we're looking at all the different characteristics that we use to ascribe personhood, and we've learned at this point that there is an internal experience that we use as the definition of a person, and we can't easily analyze it. We can't test it. We can't We can't open up the box and poke at it. We have to go by the behaviors that the other entity shows us, whether that entity is another human being or, you know, a box on a table, a human-shaped robot, a zombie. They have to show us by their behavior the characteristics that we expect of an entity that has this internal existence, this self, that it sees as separate from the outside world, that it can interact with the outside world as a self, that it is conscious, that it understands beyond the point of just being able to take in information and spit out a response to it. It has to be capable of generating a novel thought in in response to a novel situation. All of these are things that Are useful characteristics to use in our definition, but can't be proven. Maybe at some point in the future we will be able to, but at this point we can only run these tests like the Turing test to kind of guess that this is what's happening. But for all you know, you are the only one, and the rest of us are pretending. So how this relates to multiplicity? It's not something that's actually often discussed. It's been very frustrating to, as a multiple, go through the world and think about things like this. Like, I experience myself as an individual. I experience myself as aware, conscious. I have understanding. And that awareness is separate from the other people. Who I share my life with, I share my skull with. So I'm realizing that if you don't have any backstory behind what I said, a lot of that seems really ridiculous. We were diagnosed multiple 2008, but kind of rejected a lot of the psychiatric definitions of what multiplicity means and have been kind of exploring all over throughout different cultures and subcultures and internet forums and wherever have you and have yet to find a really deep understanding of what this actually means, like what the consequences of being several different minds in one body. From my perspective, if I see myself as a conscious entity, as a person, I have my internal experience. I have a me, like an I to myself. Now, what happens when we switch is I leave my experience of consciousness, and someone else with a different experience of consciousness takes over and can control the body, walk around, do what they want to do. They speak, they experience, they taste, they smell, they touch. They have a different experience than I do, and I am not there. And I think that that is a very common perception for multiples, that when we switch, there is a sense that I am me, and they are them, and we've switched spots, and now I am no longer walking around in the body as a conscious person. I have fallen into some kind of unconscious state. I still exist. So being multiple and knowing that my conscious awareness of self has gone elsewhere, back into the brain, I don't know, and knowing that someone else with their own experiences is now in charge, running around in the body, the big question is, are we two persons Or are we just one? We can't be identified as the same thing as the body. You can't say that this body is a person and the living entity inside it is a singular person. Because as we've seen, the body can change in all kinds of ways over time. And you can go in and edit an AI, change its perceptions, its personality, its reactions to the world, even if it is a conscious entity, whether or not it's moral to do so is another question, but doesn't that imply that you're looking at more than one person when you talk to multiples? I don't really have answers to any of these questions. This is basically just a long series of questions that I hope everyone listening will step back and mull over and kind of internalize and consider. I mean, I don't think most people stop at any point and prove to themselves that they are a person, but how can you not? (laughs) How can, how can you not at some point in your life go through that? I think that's crucial to being a person is to analyze what am I that makes me a person and that is really fundamental to philosophy. And it's not hypothetical. It's not spiritual or airy-fairy or, you know, this just ridiculous academic exercise. It's, it actually really does matter whether or not you can get answers out of this, at least for me. It seems that way. I spent the first two or three years after finding out that we're multiple, I was obsessed with the question of whether or not I count as a person. Because there were a lot of people around me telling me that I'm not. And all my life I just assumed I was. But now this fact has changed, and either I am a person on my own, I'm not a person at all, or the collective of us count as one person, which is terrifying to me. Like that last one, I really feel can't be true, but it's the one that I think a lot of people default to. So anyways, I feel like I have rambled really well. Uh <laughs> the audience is still here you you guys have sat through almost an hour of this so kudos um, I would love to hear from the audience uh, if you have anything to say I will speak it into the microphone and give an answer it can be a continuation of the discussion if you have any questions about the discussion if you have any questions about my suspenders about multiplicity I hope, I hope like there's a whole bunch of little fingers typing right now. Please. (laughs) When you brought up the cyborg stuff, I sort of thought you were going in the direction. But do you know about extended, do you know about extended cognition theory? Um, I'm guessing that that has to do with expanding upon, uh, our own feeble, wet brains. Is that correct? And, yes, Aaron is quite correct. My suspenders could be much gayer. It's really sad that they aren't. So, solips I never know how to pronounce that. I uh, was asking about... Oh. You know what? I'm going to have to cheat. Because I'm getting a whole bunch of questions that... I wasn't anticipating, and that's awesome. Hopefully this doesn't break everything. Okay. The idea, okay, so Lipstiful is talking about uh, extended cognition theory. The idea that saying cognition only happens in the brain is a bit presumptuous. Maybe when you do math on a piece of paper, that could be cognition too. You know, that's actually a really, really good point. And I think is one of those edge cases that show that uh the boundary of what we usually think of as a person isn't really all that discreet. Like you take the example of like doing math on a piece of paper. It's like your brain is supposedly doing all the work, but if your brain is doing all the work, then why are you using the paper? Why are you using a pen and paper to do long division? So, Obviously part of the cognition that's supposed, that you think is just happening in your brain is also happening through your arm, through the pen and paper. And you know what? I think as we develop, we're getting further and further into that. I know that for me, I can navigate around this city where I live pretty well, but I just don't anymore. I found that driving took up too much of my mental work. And I finally just said, (laughs) Google Maps, show me where to go, tell me when to turn. I don't want to think about driving. I don't want to think about navigating anymore. So I absolutely think that our thought processes go on in a very kind of fuzzy boundary around us. Absolutely. And I think that we're going to see way, way more of that over time. Okay. Uh, so Kevin is asking if a person is a person at birth or at conception, then does it make sense to me that an altar is considered a real person at their conception, right? Okay. This Kevin, really good question. Um, and for us, and it's probably different for different systems, but for us it's we've only really remembered the experience of a new system member a few times, but it's always been like there's this stage where there's something like the idea of something like the character without the person who starts to appear and develop and there's for us some point that's just sort of ineffable where something just happens that clicks that 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 member becomes a person and you can feel it everyone in the system can feel it happen it's I don't have a really good language to describe it but I think I think that there is a process that goes on there and I don't know how it is for other systems either. Uh Jamie, I'm catching up. I'm doing my best. Uh do you have a question for you? Do you personally see personhood as being tied to someone's body or separate from it? Um yeah, I think that with the examples we've gone through and you can totally go back and rewatch, re-listen. Once we have like the edited podcast, you can like get the whole scoop so you can catch up. But the, I think the consensus in my brain is that, uh, there is a personhood that is separate from just the physical body. So in theory could be removed from the body in some way. That you could take everything that a person is and map it to some other body. I don't think that, and the body itself can change so much over time or experiences or, uh, procedures that, uh, tying a personhood to a body just doesn't make sense. Uh, oh my god guys, you're typing like crazy and I love it. Okay. Okay. Slips to full. What happens if we start offloading cognition onto things like phones though that research doesn't care about? Um, I am okay with the idea that part of my personhood exists in my phone that there's like a fuzzy boundary between it and I, that if I have given over part of my cognition to it, then maybe the boundaries of me as a person aren't that discreet. And I think that that's not a new phenomenon. Like anyone who has written uh, a book or painted a painting or created on some really, important work you find yourself so attached and intertwined with it that um it really stretches that boundary of your personhood and who you think you are uh emma extension of the self over time slash distance and into others via oh totally (laughs) I, i kind of unintentionally just went into that didn't i um I feel that, yeah, like I was saying about if you write a book or paint a painting, I think that I have, through reading and through um, viewing art and experiencing things like that, yeah, definitely there is, it's another instance of a fuzzy boundary between them and I. Um, it might not be that our personhoods have necessarily uh interlaced, but some part of my personhood has been informed by theirs, if that makes sense. Yeah. Slipstuffle. Uh that gets weird for people who came from splitting to not just separate new persons showing up. Okay, yeah. This you probably should ask one about that. Um, I don't wanna run in and tell his story, but uh he sort of split off from me, and his story of becoming a person is like complicated, but also had this process of um starting off as like an empty sort of character that became a person it's like I say I shouldn't be telling someone else's story and it's not something that I think I really have the words to describe (sighs) oh anyone else yeah okay Kevin, what Kevin is saying, like I can really identify with uh it's only been six years of cognitive realization of my alters. I see it like this they are they have lied their li lived their lives with or without me knowing about it, inner world or outer world. It's like coming to know the people walking around like a city full of people or an area of people that is involved with the same job. We don't know them at first, but as we go, we find out who they are, yeah, uh absolutely. I always use the um, the random busload analogy. Uh, I can't remember who in our system came up with it originally. Probably Nathan. But realizing you're multiple is like being on a city bus that's full of just random people and finding out that you can no longer get off the bus ever. And the people that you are on the bus with just totally random cross segment of, you know, your city. Uh, now you have to spend the rest of your existence with them. There's a bomb on the bus and you can't get off. (laughs) Um, it's exactly like that. It's like, it's like there was this whole collection of people that were like friends of friends or like sort of in your community, but on the fringes of your community. And now all of a sudden, you live with them, like in your house and you've got to get to know them. <laughs> it's a good metaphor. A group home. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to look at it too. Uh, I did get a question online. Oh, got another one from Emma. Sometimes new people get on the bus, too, and then everyone is just like, (laughs) welcome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sometimes people get on the bus. Yeah, that happens. Um, So I posted on a whole bunch of different social media about this podcast I'd be doing and asked for questions. I've got a really fascinating question um, from Matt Rollins, who runs another podcast called The Pocket Dump Podcast. And he wants to know about our purse. I think potentially he misunderstood. <laughs> um, but basically, the concept of his podcast is that he interviews people about what they have in their pockets and where they keep what and why, and does a whole podcast around this and was curious about us. And the short answer and the short answer is, um, this is just a constant disaster. We don't change it around very much because it would be inefficient if everyone kept all their stuff in a different place, because it's not like, We each have our own set of keys that we keep in our own pants. We all share the same pants. If we switch in the middle of the day, I'm wearing these pants now. I have no choice. And the keys are where they are. And I'm not going to stop and reconfigure everything. Even though right now, my keys are in my left pocket and it is driving me insane. Um, one of the ways we've gotten around this in the past is to carry a satchel. So that has kind of had compartments where we keep, okay, this is the wallet compartment, this is the keys compartment. Everyone knows the satchel and knows where everything is in it. So just leave it. And then someone will be like, you know, I think we should have a smaller satchel and they go out and buy a smaller satchel and like put everything into the smaller satchel and it doesn't quite fit. And then everyone else has to deal with this. <laughs> I don't think that this was the, uh, the answer you were expecting. Um, one thing we do that we're supposed to keep in our pockets at all times is a little carabiner that's got rings on it, because we all have... I'm not wearing my ring because I can't find the carabiner because one keeps losing it. This drives me crazy. Uh, get with it, one. So to answer your question, it's like a lot more boring than you expect because we use efficiency and consistency to avoid frustration. And the other part of it is that no one can agree on what configuration we should use consistently. <laughs> I guess uh, he also asked, do we have a messy personality and a tidy one? Uh, just FYI for people in general to know, don't use the term personality unless you're writing a really bad horror movie. Um, Do we have a messy one and a tidy one? I, okay. Some of us are messier than others. It's always funny when people ask, do you have an X and a Y? in, like, discrete states, and it's like... Who is the blank one? Who is the blank one? It's like, there's no one who is the messy one. We're all just, like, people doing stuff who are sometimes messy and sometimes not, and some of us are worse than others, and it's complicated. Anyways, on the subject of social media... I'm going to let you guys all know where you can find us because we have Corpus Multi um, accounts set up all over the place. First of all, most importantly, uh, you should definitely check us out on Patreon.com slash the DC, T-H-E-D-C on Patreon. And uh, yeah, it's definitely the best place to follow us and send us money to continue doing awesome stuff like this, because God, we, the artist stuff is not cheap. <laughs> Nor is podcasting. Uh, okay, so on Facebook, you can search for the desired constellation artists. On Twitter, it's at Corpus Multi. On Tumblr, we have a new one uh slash corpusmulti and i think that wraps it all up all right well thank you all for coming um this went really really well i was really really scared of like having nobody show up or having everyone show up and this was like the perfect in between balance thank you thank you emma And yeah, within a week, I hope you should see the edited final version of this show available everywhere fine podcasts are given away for free. And yeah, have a good night.